0: Did you ever hear about the community that's buried underneath Central Park? The internet says it's true. Welcome to the internet says it's true where every week we learn something that sounds like I made it up, but it's really true. Part of the WCBE podcast experience. My name is Michael Kent. This is episode 146. I'm currently just getting back from a couple weeks at sea and then Chicago, and I'm currently on my way back home. So we'll get you a new episode next week. Today is Juneteenth, and while I've never done an episode about Juneteenth, I probably should. I've found that a lot of people don't really know the history about it or the story behind how it took until June of 1865 for federal troops to come into Texas there in Galveston Bay and free the remaining 250,000 enslaved people in the state two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Of course, the 13th Amendment was ratified that December, and then the country entered a really dark period of history another dark period of history of uh, reconstruction and this week's rewind episode is a story about something that happened in new york city during that period of reconstruction we'll be speaking with a leading voice when it comes to the study of seneca village nan rothschild so stick around for that please remember you can become a tizziter a supporter of the podcast by signing up for patreon and you can do that for as little as a dollar a month or as much as you want it's patreon.com slash michael kent and you can sign up now for a free trial. So if you're on the fence about joining, you can sign up, try it for a week, let you know see what you think about it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash michaelkent. There's a link in the show notes. I will be back in Columbus for four shows at the P3 Magic Theater on June 23rd and 24th. Those tickets are available at p3magictheater.com. So if you want to see me perform magic live, you can do that. So this episode that we're playing today is the second episode I ever did on this podcast. I didn't really know what the podcast was at that point. Just interesting and little-known stories from history. And this is certainly one that not too many people know about. So this one was episode two, and it was first released September 14th of 2020. So when you visit Central Park in New York City, you are visiting the site of Seneca Village. It was a short-lived but growing village between 1825 and 1857. It was made up primarily of African-Americans, but also home to Irish immigrants and a small number of Germans. There were 225 residents in all, uh, 50 homes, three churches, and even a school. So that's substantial. That's not just a few houses. They had three churches. I know towns here in Ohio that don't have three churches. So what happened to Seneca Village? Why didn't it continue to exist in the middle of what is now Central Park? Let's learn some more. In the early 1800s, the southern part of Manhattan was thriving and absolutely full of people. That part of New York was more similar to the New York City you think of now. If you ever saw the movie Gangs of New York, that was what the lower part of Manhattan was. Dirty, overpopulated, but bustling and thriving. In the 1820s, that thriving Manhattan pretty much stopped at 14th Street, and anything north of Greenwich Village was just wide open land. It was populated... But not densely, and it contained a lot of hills, valleys, rocks, farms, and basically just not the New York City we know of. Over the next couple decades, New York was also slowly abolishing slavery. So there was a huge influx of freed slaves entering the workforce and looking for an opportunity to work and make their life in New York. So you had freed slaves in Manhattan increasing the official population at the same time, You had a lot of immigrants from Ireland and Germany coming over as well. So, room was running out and the city was expanding northward. A man by the name of Andrew Williams was a free black man in 1825 who purchased land in an area that would later be known as Seneca Village. He bought the plot of land for $125, which was a lot of money back then. He earned that money primarily as a shoeshine. Over the next couple decades, The land around Andrew Williams was bought by other families, and it became a village. It grew to be one of the first free black communities in New York. Many of these families were from the AME Zion Church, which were some of the most prosperous groups of African Americans in the 19th century. Quickly the community grew to more than 200 households, and with the majority of those families being African American, Seneca Village was a rarity for its time, hardly anywhere else at that time. Could you find a village with such a high rate of African-American home ownership? Keep in mind, this was pre-Civil War era, pre-13th Amendment. And here you have a vibrant, thriving community of majority free black Americans living, working, and raising families in a community with several churches and a school. Seneca Village didn't take up the entire area that we now know as Central Park. It was about five acres uh, near the Upper West Side, and it was bounded by what is now 82nd and 89th Street Street and seventh and eighth avenues Um, had they been if they were there at the time that's where it would have been so it was um, a rectangle sort of on one edge of central park so what happened to it between 1821 and 1855 the population of new york city quadrupled and in addition to freed slaves the city was a popular place for irish immigrants escaping the potato famine of 1845 and German immigrants escaping the revolutions of 1848. So it became the epitome of the melting pot, and the city was experiencing growing pains. It saw rampant gang violence stemming from the Bowery and Five Points areas, riots, financial panic, a devastating fire in the financial district, and a few natural disasters like a hurricane that to this day is the only hurricane to fall directly on New York City. All that happened during this time, and it was just becoming cramped, overpopulated, and all of these things combined made some of the wealthy elites decide that it was time for New York City to have a breathing space. The quote in the newspaper was that a central park would give lungs to the city. As it existed, there wasn't really anywhere for recreation without leaving the city. There, were, uh, some, there was a little bit of recreation area, like cemeteries. Yes, they actually conducted their recreation inside cemeteries back then. And there were a few small parks, like Battery Park at the southern tip of Manhattan, And other large cities around the world had these glorious decorative recreation areas that people were traveling overseas and seeing. A planning committee was soon formed and after a few failed plans involving different areas where they wanted to build a park, they eventually settled on a 750 acre area between the 59th and 106th streets and uh, between 5th and 8th streets on the east and west. Now this was July of 1853 And it was, at the time, it was going to be America's first major landscaped public park. They said it was going to cost $1.7 million to build. Uh, There were only a few problems. A, it would actually cost more than $7 million to build. That's more than the U.S. paid for Alaska just a few years later. And B, there were thousands of people living in that area at that time, including all the residents of Seneca Village. So at this point, It's where this story becomes one of eminent domain. In eminent domain, the owners of the private land that's being acquired for public use are compensated. The Constitution requires that land taken through eminent domain only be designated for public use and that the private landowners are fairly compensated. And when it was proposed that Central Park would replace these neighborhoods, the residents of these neighborhoods were rightly angry. And we have records of them fighting this. One of the most outspoken was the elderly Andrew Williams, who was the first settler of Seneca Village. There were other neighborhoods and properties in this area, but none as developed and settled. The city fought public outrage by mischaracterizing the people who lived there in Seneca Village. It was called a shantytown in the newspapers. They downplayed the condition of the homes in the area, saying that there were miserable-looking, broken-down shanties. They called it Squatter's Village. One newspaper used a racial slur to describe it. And this was a village with three churches and a school, and they're calling it a squatter's village and describing it as being infested with mongrel dogs and pigs. And we know now that this was largely a lie to fight public outrage about eminent domain. Excavations have been done on the area that was Seneca Village, and some of the artifacts and pottery that are found there are expensive porcelain, even toothbrushes, which were only used by upper class at that time. We even have the census records from the village that show that many of the residents were well-educated. It was clearly a middle-class village, but the misrepresentation of the village by the newspapers prevented any sort of large public outrage at the destruction of the village by eminent domain. The residents fought to keep their land, but lost and eventually were paid sums of money for their land that were much less than their actual value. We actually have a letter from Andrew Williams to the city that complained that his three lots were supposed to be valued at around $4,000, and he was paid around half that. Some other residents that lived in the area that would become Central Park were never compensated at all. So the landowners lost their fight to stay, and Central Park was built. Interesting fact, they used more gunpowder to clear the land in Central Park than was used in the Battle of Gettysburg six years later. Seneca Village was, for the most part, forgotten about until interest surged in 1992 because of a book about Central Park that extensively covered it called The Park and the People, A History of Central Park. Then from 1997 to 2000, a group started conducting imaging tests that were done to see if any of the village remained underground. In the mid 2000s and again in 2011, digs were conducted and they found the foundation walls of one of the homes and some other items that helped tell the story that Seneca Village was once a vibrant, integrated, middle-class community well ahead of its time. It's time for the part of the podcast where I call a friend and see if they already know what we just learned. For this episode, I thought we would quiz someone who may actually have some knowledge on the subject. Nan Rothschild is the former director of museum studies at Columbia University and a research professor at Barnard College. She's co-director and co-founder of the Seneca Village Project, which is a collaboration dedicated to preserving and promoting the memory and history of the village as one of our nation's first free middle-class black communities. Hello Nan, thanks for coming on today.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Michael.
0: I understand you're, you're in the process of moving, so I know that that's, that's a headache, and I and, uh, appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk with us. I just have a few quick questions. Uh, first, let's start with a pretty broad question. Why is it important that we remember Seneca Village?
1: Seneca Village enriches and expands our understanding of the 19th century, of New York City, of African Americans, and of whites as well. Uh, because it was not known until we started doing this research. And by we, I'm being pretty inclusive. I mean, there are historians who have talked about Seneca Village, uh, Betsy Blackmar and Roy Rosenzweig, uh, Leslie Harris. So there are historians who have uh, alerted us to the presence of this kind of community. But archaeologically, it was just so exciting. To find the material culture evidence that really demonstrates that this was a different uh, kind of African American experience for people living in the city it was really it was a place that was free of the normal racial harassment that blacks fa- faced in the downtown city in the nineteenth century um, because initially it was all African American and then by the eighteen 40s and 50s, uh, some Irish and, and German immigrants joined them. But since they joined them and they were in the minority, it must have been a harmonious experience.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and, and as well, I've, I've read that there were, the, the churches were integrated at the time, the, the German the, and Irish yes, immigrants. One of,
1: yes, one of the churches was integrated.
0: And there were, was was there also some integrated um Marriages as well, or, or families living with, under one roof.
1: Well, we're not sure about that. There may very well have been. Yes, I think there were some couples who were uh, mixed race. But what we do have from the church records is that we know that there were interracial witnesses at marriages and baptisms. Okay. So the community was clearly not the typical, you know, racist community that would have been uh persistent in a lot of other parts of the city um, but it was also i mean you know there have been uh some children's books written uh plays uh, a lot of artists have taken the idea of seneca village and sort of run with it and interpret it in their own way there's a wonderful uh, textile designer who has a website uh, in which she talks about which she shows She's The website, I think, is entitled We Wore More Than Shackles. And she has images of what she imagines women in Seneca Village might have been wearing. Wow. From from my point of view, um, she's a little, uh, I mean, first of all, African fabrics were not being imported into the U.S. in that time period. And second of all, the idea of long dresses. I mean, she has these very Victorian long dresses with, you know, high waists and so on. And I think if you're living in a community with, with the, the floors are all dirt, I'm not sure that that would be practical. But it's a wonderful image, nevertheless.
0: And um, and do we have jewelry and, and different things that would might give us an indication of what they may have worn at that time, just from no, the excavations?
1: No, we have. No, no, we don't have jewelry, but we have um, We have evidence of uh, self-care in the sense of toothbrushes. Mm -hmm. Toothbrushes were not that common in the 1840s, and yet the the one house that we excavated, which was called the Wilson House, um, and it was lived in by one of the uh, church sextons. He was the sexton for the integrated church. Uh, His name was William Godfrey Wilson, and his wife's name was Charlotte, and they had eight or nine children. And they lived in a three-story, but get this, 20-by-20-foot 20 20 house.
0: Whoa. <laughs> that's a tall house. It looks. It's, it's a-
1: tall and cozy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Five by 20 feet. Wow.
1: I imagine that the parents lived on the top floor, the children lived on the second floor, and the family lived on <laughs> <in> the ground <laughs> floor. Um, wow. But anyway, it was... Um, So we found that within two days of our opening, which was incredibly fortunate. And so we have, you know, we have the the reason that we say it's middle class. Um, And I I think middle class might, it's a label and who knows what it really means, right? Um, I think it could have a different meaning. I mean, some of the historians have suggested that it would be different for African-Americans to be middle class than for whites in the 19th century to be middle class.
0: Um, And it's certainly a paradigm shift from what most people imagine. I mean, we're talking about antebellum New York, and um, they had spent the last three to four decades slowly freeing slaves in this area. And most people don't think about an idea of a living, working community with people who are using nice pottery and toothbrushes and things like this. We've talked about a little bit on the podcast uh, earlier about how eminent domain destroyed this thriving community. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how eminent domain is used perhaps unevenly in our society?
1: Well, there's a um, a famous black minister, Calvin Butts, Mm -hmm. who says that urban renewal means African removal. I think that's a very pithy way of putting it.
0: It is. Yeah. And, it, you know, we've, we've touched on how this community was lied about in the newspapers and mischaracterized yep. in order to prevent this sort of outrage. Are there other communities in America that we can compare to Seneca Village?
1: There are quite a few, actually. I mean, uh, at least four or five that I know of that I would say are similar in the sense that they... Had a cell, you know. They're organized around the church, they, so it was a moral community, and education was really important. I mean, one of the amazing things about Seneca Village was that if you look at the census, many of their children uh, reached uh, high school, ah. uh, and there was no high school nearby. I mean, they would have had to walk to Lower Manhattan or stay with a relative or something. So clearly, education was was important.
0: Um, anyway,
1: there's a, a community in boston near the african meeting house Uh, there's one in oakland that uh, railroad porters uh, founded Um, there's one in washington dc um and i think there's oh there's new philadelphia which isn't quite urban but still was an african-american predominantly community there may be one other but so there, I'm sure there are others that we don't know of. Oh, there's, you know, there, there are the ones in Oklahoma. Um, Tulsa? That one that was burned in 19-whatever?
0: Yeah. I've read stories about the current home of Dodger Stadium in Chavez Ravine, where there was an entire community of um, uh, immigrants that were living in, and thriving in that area that they removed. I'm not sure if that's a story of eminent domain. I don't know how established that community was. Um, But back to eminent domain for just a moment. Does it seem like the citizens that lived in this village were fairly compensated for their land and for their property?
1: Well, the only way that we have of knowing that is by looking at their affidavits when they went to complain to say, I mean, one of them says, you know, I have been offered three times this price by somebody and I still didn't want to sell. And, you know, a, a number of them felt that they had been treated unfairly in terms of compensation. And of course they didn't want to move at all. And then the sad thing is this was a real community and it broke up. I mean, they did not move as a community, it scattered.
0: But you touched earlier about how there were books, there was, there was interest in this community, but for the most part, and as it related to most of society, Seneca Village was lost to history for a very long time. Yes, it was. Why do you think that that happened?
1: Well, I, I have a particular view uh, that maybe others don't share, but I think in uh, 1998, there was an exhibit at the Historical Society called uh, Seneca Village, the Life and Death of a Community. And it was up for more than a year, and it listed all of the names uh, of the people who had lived in Seneca Village, because we have a pretty good documentary record from that country. And um, it asked all the people who came if they knew anybody who was descended from any of the people in Seneca Village. And I think one or two Irish individuals identified, you know, had heard there had been some oral history of, in their family. Uh, but no African Americans. And so um, we have tried to find a descendant. But I think that one of the issues is that once the spatial cohesiveness of the community was destroyed, it was much harder for the the memory of it to remain. I mean, memory is really attached to place, in my opinion. And so when the place is gone, transformed, it's very hard to maintain some of those memories. Es-
0: especially have- with the scattering that you mentioned. You know, if yeah. this community didn't stay together, there's no one to record their history and pass it forward.
1: Well, you, you, you could imagine that it could have been part of oral history, that grandmothers could have told their grandchildren about this place that their grandfathers had lived in. Uh, but we did finally find a, a couple of descendants from one family. Um, and it was almost by accident. I mean, she wrote to me and one of our, we have a, an advisory board and a man named Cal Jones, who was the borough historian of Manhattan. Um, we each got emails from her and saying, I'm, I've been interested in Seneca Village and I wanted to hear more about it. And it turned out that her family was one of the families in the village. That was just almost random. Wow. Um, but now we have made a connection with her and it's her I don't know, seventh great-grandfather who lived in the village.
0: Well, it's fantastic that she cares and, and uh, has taken an interest in the, the history of the genealogy of her family. Well, I really do appreciate your time. Um, thank you for coming on the, the show with me today. Is there a place where people can go and learn more online about Seneca Village?
1: Well, there are a number of websites. Uh, the Central Park Conservancy also has an exhibit right now in Central Park about Seneca Village and if you go to 85th Street and Central Park West and you enter the park there, there are about 14 or 15 signs of locating where different individuals lived and where different, where the spring was that people drank from and where uh, the churches were and so on so that's a very good place and there are also various
0: websites well thank you again for coming on it was awesome to to touch base with you and, and to learn from uh, obviously from just about as close to the source as one can get these days right <laughs> we okay. appreciate it well that's all for this week thanks to nan rothschild for being my guest here's a young archaeologist thank you for listening to the internet says it's true To listen to episodes ad-free and a week early, support us on Patreon. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash michaelkent. If you learned something just now that you didn't already know, go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That helps us a ton, because that's how the algorithm works. I don't know what an algorithm is, but just do it! See you next week for a brand new episode of The Internet
1: Says It's True!
0: The Internet Says It's True would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions helped to make this show possible. Sean Brown, Denny Corby, Joshua Endres, Dallas Ray, Bryce Swanson, Eugene Anderson, Jim and Joanne Martin, Mitch and Andrew Joseph Kemplin, and the show's official Emperor KickTrack. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge. All audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under Fair Use Title 17, USC Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Kent. The Internet Says It's True is part of the WCBE podcast experience.